Hey, everybody. I'm Katie Natopoulos, and this is The News from BuzzFeed News. This week, we hear the story of how all the systems meant to protect one teenage girl failed her after she reported a rape. Then we figure out the best-case scenario for John Brennan's security clearance, and finally, we bring you some clarity around this week's headlines. Let's do this! Today, we heard new details about the crime scene where Mujay Dambaya's body was found. Former CIA Director John Brennan has written a fiery response to the Trump administration. The legal fate of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort now lies in the hands of the jury. In the fall of 2017, a high school sophomore told police she was raped by a facilities worker from her school. Two months later, she went missing and her body was found in the woods. Her death made national news. A girl set to testify against her alleged rapist, killed while he's conveniently out of jail, and all of this right in the midst of the Me Too movement. The police charged her alleged rapist with murder, and as the homicide trial approaches, national reporter Jessica Testa dug into his life, revealing a troubled youth, a series of unprosecuted crimes, broken communications between the school and the police, bureaucratic hurdles, and second chance after second chance. In this week's The Lead, Jessica tells national editor Tina Sussman how she chased down the story. And just to warn you, there are descriptions of sexual violence in this conversation. So in July, I met with the family of Mujay Zamboya. I went to her aunt's home. She lived there the summer of 2017. She was 15 years old. It was just after her freshman year ended. And she started to chat with a boy named DQ on Facebook. Mm -hmm. They didn't know each other. And he was living in the Grand Rapids area with his aunt. So they started chatting and they decided to meet up at the end of July. Like their first date. Exactly. Driving DQ to meet Mujay is his aunt's fiance, a guy named Quinn Anthony James. And Mujay had not met Quinn Anthony James either? So he drives the two of them around, and at the end of the night, Mujay's dropped off. She's home for about 10 minutes when DQ calls her and tells her to come back outside. She comes back outside, she gets in the car, and it's inside this car that Quinn Anthony James allegedly rapes her for the first time. I think one of the things that is most upsetting about this story, about what happened to Mujay, is her background before she even came to live in Michigan with her family. Can you tell us a little bit about what she was born into? Yes, Mujay was born in Sierra Leone in the year 2001. And she was born to a family of Liberians who had fled the Civil War in their country gone to Sierra Leone and found another war-torn country. They lived in a a refugee camp operated by the UN. And when Mujay was about three years old, her family was resettled to Michigan. They left so much violence behind to essentially move to suburbia. So back to her relationship with DQ and, and Quinn James, what went on after that first date? So throughout the summer, The same thing basically happened a couple times. This is all according to DQ, by the way. Quinn James would allegedly rape Mujay, and DQ would be holding her hand the entire time, and and she would usually be crying, as DQ described it. It, It's so hard to envision this situation, this scene. I mean, it's it's 
disgusting, frankly. But DQ obviously says that he had reason for this. And what does he tell police was going through his mind when this was happening? DQ said that he was afraid of James. Him and Mujay were both afraid of James. And this was his aunt's fiance, and he lived under James's roof. And he had seen James once uh, choking his aunt, and DQ had tried to intervene, and uh, James had started choking DQ. So there was a history of, of violence in that relationship, and also, you know, DQ was living under this guy's roof. Yeah, yeah. And why didn't Mujay do something right away? Because this apparently, according to what the police say, this went on for quite a while. At some point, she saw that Quinn James had a badge that uh, that said EK, East Kentwood, and that was her high school. So she kind of knew this guy worked at her high school. She didn't know exactly what he did, according to her family, but he started to tell her, you know, I can mess with your grades. I can do whatever. And DQ overheard that, he said, and then also her family, when, when Mujay came forward to them, finally, that fall, her family said, Mujay told us that he was threatening to mess with her grades. And do we know how this guy came to be working at this school? Because apparently he did have a bit of a record. More than a bit, I think. <laughs> tell us tell us more about that record and, and how the heck were you able to get all the details that are in this story. So uh, Quinn James served 20 years for armed robbery. He was uh, sent to prison when he was 16 years old. And the school hired him the same year that he got out of prison. So he serves 20 years, gets out of prison, and pretty much immediately gets a job at a school. And, you know, on his application, he, he wrote that he had served 20 years in prison. He had to legally. And so the school knew, knew about this. Um, and James saw this as a, as a second chance for himself, according to his lawyer. He was grateful for the opportunity. Um, it, it's, it can be really hard for people convicted of crimes to get jobs after incarceration. So, you know, this, this could have been a, a second chance, a, a happy story, you know, a, a formerly incarcerated person getting another chance. But what happened instead was that he got this job. And first, from the school's perspective, around 2013, so two years into the job, he started acting out a little bit, using his cell phone at work, crashing equipment, sleeping on the job, having friends visit with him. So he didn't have like a sterling record at the school. And then in 2014, he was actually arrested for stealing allegedly two iPods and an iPhone from the girls' locker room. Mm -hmm. So the jury in that case found him not guilty. So the school decided to keep employing him after the jury came back and acquitted him. Meanwhile, throughout this time, there were these sort of under-the-radar crimes happening. And these are the these are under-the-radar crimes that the school wouldn't necessarily have been expected to know about because for a variety of reasons, it seems that he was never charged with most of these cases that you were able to uncover. Yeah. So when you're a school employee, <clears throat> at least this is how it was explained to me by uh, the sheriff's department, when you're a school employee, the only way the school would find out if you were involved in a criminal investigation is if it either involved a student at that school or if a warrant was issued for your arrest. Neither of those things happened, and I can walk you through some of the some of the instances that we were able to uncover. So, I mean, the biggest, most significant one to this story is that in 2014, he was accused of 
raping a 18-year-old girl. And he was accused of choking her. He was accused of threatening to kill her. She even later said he threatened to pour bleach over her dead body. Mm -hmm. So that was a a pretty extreme case. In that case, she actually – it was really interesting. She escaped because she got him to take her to Applebee's um, to get some food after the incident. And, you know, she was trying to play it cool the whole time. So they're at the Applebee's and she excuses herself to use the restroom. And in the restroom, she calls the cops and she's whispering. And it's all it's all sort of a, a dramatic scene. She pulls in an Applebee's employee and, and begs the employee to stay with her in the stall until the police come. And yet that was a case that still did not lead to any charges being filed against him. Right. Prosecutor right. said there wasn't enough evidence. And so – Let's circle back then to Mujay's case because there's so many similarities. Mm-hmm. So where we left off, Mujay had finally felt brave enough to report that she was being raped by this man. So then what happened? So that was in November and uh, immediately afterward, Quinn James was arrested um, and he was put on leave from the school and then he was eventually fired. But he's arrested and he is arraigned, which means he's charged with four counts of third-degree criminal sexual conduct. And at that arraignment, the judge sets his bond at $100,000. And so James is sort of, you know, wondering how you – know, does he have to pay that full amount to get out of jail? He doesn't – he's asking the judge to explain it to him. And the judge explains like, no, if you pay 10 percent to a, a surety bond company, they'll put up the rest and you can go free. And so sure enough, that's what James does. He puts up bail. And we still don't have any idea where he actually got that $10,000. No, his lawyer doesn't even know. Did the judge explain to anybody why he would have let this person with – who had already served 20 years in prison, who obviously, you know, had had a lot of run-ins with the police. Why was this person even able to get out on bond? I mean, $100,000 sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that much when you look at the other bonds that have been set by this particular judge and other judges. Right. This judge has set million-dollar bonds before. The judge wouldn't talk to us for the story, but he did say to another reporter, you know, that he thought $100,000 wasn't an insignificant amount. At least that's what the prosecutor later said. But moreover, he didn't know about all these other crimes that James had allegedly committed. He only knew about the armed robbery that put James in prison for 20 years. And he knew about this incident that happened while James was in prison where he was convicted of attempting to possess weapons in prison. Mm-hmm. So he only knew about those two things. And and he said to a, a, a local reporter down in Kalamazoo, you know, if I had known what I know now, like, of course, you know, maybe things would have been different. Yeah. And some people would say, well, even if you didn't know what you know now, the the things you did know would have seemed pretty serious enough to warrant at least a higher bond, if not no bond. So what happened next? What happened next is that a trial date was set for April. And keep in mind, uh, James is out free during this time. Right. He The only restriction is that he can have no contact with Mujay. Um, but he's kind of a free man. He doesn't have a job anymore, but he's a free man. So the trial set for April. In January, Mujay goes missing. The last person who saw her was her mother uh, at 6 a.m. on January 24th. And her mother recalls that Mujay asked her for money for coffee and said, bye, mommy, and and walked out the door to catch a bus to go to school. And that was the last uh, anyone saw her. 
four days later, it was a Sunday. There was a couple out for a walk in Kalamazoo in kind of like a wooded area. And they see in the distance this sort of shapeless form they can't really make out. But as they get closer and closer to it, they realize that it's a girl. They can see her braids. They can see one of her legs bent. Yeah. Uh, and they call the cops. Public safety emergency. Hi, I'm calling this morning because I want to report what I believe to be a body in the woods. I'm not sure. I called to the person. They didn't respond. It didn't take long for, for police to go right back to the man at the center of this, Quinn James. How did they decide that he was the person they wanted to look at? Well, I think once they connected the dots that this was someone who Mujay was set to testify against in a pretty serious crime and someone who had a prior record, it seemed like he had a motive at least. So they go, police go and question him um, not long after Mujay's body is found. And, you know, he won't answer questions. He's kind of like, you know, I need my lawyer present, that kind of thing. But later that day, he's arrested, but not for allegedly killing Mujay. He's arrested for that case I was talking about earlier in 2014 where he was accused by another young girl of rape. And this was the girl that called the police from the Applebee's. Exactly. I think one of the things that struck me in the story is um, I believe it's a prosecutor who's quoted as saying that this was just such an unusual case. Nothing like this ever happens. And I found that annoying because Because to me, we've done so many other stories that look at such terrible systemic failures. And in this case, it seems that there was – the school didn't act on somebody who a lot of people now would say, my gosh, how could you have somebody like that working at your school around kids? Whoever was supposed to tell the judge about this person's background apparently did not give the full background. Therefore, he was released on bond. Prosecutors, police, for whatever reason – didn't charge him in so many different cases. And I don't know. Do you think it's that unusual of a case? I mean, certainly what happened to this poor girl is thankfully pretty unusual. But in terms of the things that allowed it to happen, I guess I don't see that, sadly, as all that unusual. And it just seems like we hear about this stuff too often. Yeah, I think this story reveals a lot of systemic issues. Uh, One of them being, you know, are police really taking the reports of women seriously who say that they've been abused or sexually assaulted. Especially young women. Especially young women. You know, another issue is that when Mujay went missing, she was initially reported as a runaway by the police, even though her parents, you know, her family was like, no, she's missing. You don't understand. She's missing. (laughs) Big difference. Yeah. So and um, but, you know. I talked to the police about this, and and they sort of said, you know, that's how we classify people who are under 17, and and there's no indication of foul play. So she was listed as a runaway, and there's been a lot of um, research and and stories written about how missing black girls are often immediately identified as runaways, uh, which sort of deprioritizes their cases. Right. This case, it did make, you know, it did make national news finally, but only because it was just such an egregious example of what can go wrong when the wrong person is let out on bond and it makes you wonder how many other how many other cases have been like this that we've just never heard about mm-hmm. so where's Quinn where's Quinn James now what's his situation 
So he's being held in jail without bond. Wow. While he, okay. <laughs> That's a change. <laughs> while he awaits trial. So he's facing three different trials, though. He has the uh, alleged rape of Mujay, the alleged murder of Mujay, and then also this uh, alleged 2014 rape, the, you know, for lack of a better word, Applebee's the girl. Applebee case, yeah. yeah. Has the Applebee's girl, who's now a woman, 22 years old, I guess, has she come out and said anything? Was she one of the people you were able to talk to? Unfortunately not. We were able to put her voice in the story, though, because she did testify in court and and tell her story of what happened to her. But, you know, if I could talk to her, the first <sighs> question out of my mouth would be, how do you feel that prosecutors didn't take up your case in 2014? But now, you know, 2018, when this guy's being looked at as a murder suspect— now he's arrested. Now now they decide to believe you. Have the police or the school or the courts, has anybody, like, apologized or taken responsibility or said, yeah, we should have done things differently, this was, this was a mistake? They have not. There hasn't really been any responsibility taken. I think it's easy for them to say— we weren't the ones who killed her. Yeah. You know, this this guy, Quinn Anthony James, he's a monster. He, you know, he allegedly did it. But I think that the, the, all of those parties bear some responsibility that they haven't yet taken. You know, a lot of them have just expressed, this is such a tragedy. You know, we're so devastated for this family. We're here to support them, that kind of thing. But I would like to hear one of them say, like, I wish we would have done this. I wish we would have done that. Yeah, I bet the family would like to hear that, too. So what's the family doing now? I mean, are they suing or they were just waiting for this trial? Are they going to stay? Are they going to stay in Michigan? Are they thinking, wow, you know, maybe we should have stayed in Sierra Leone or maybe maybe this isn't the safe haven we thought it was? They have put down roots in Michigan, so I don't see them moving, but they are reflecting a lot on the fact that they fled a war zone. They fled violence only to be met with incredible violence, um, violence that, that felt so personal and so um, so vicious in the way that, that Muje, the 16-year-old girl, was, was ripped from them. They are considering, they're exploring the option of suing the school. Mm-hmm. And that will be really interesting. They're going to wait until the criminal cases conclude. And I think more than anything, they're just, they want to be part of this case. They want to go to every single hearing. They want to sit in the courtroom with Quinn Anthony James as much as possible. And they're also, you know, deeply in mourning. That was Tina Sussman and Jessica Testa. If you want to read more about this case, text JoJo the word Michigan. JoJo's number is in the show notes for this episode. And now Deputy World Editor Hayes Brown plays out the best possible timeline for Trump's more uh, questionable decisions in Best Case Scenario. Hey, guys. This week, we're talking about former CIA Director John O. Brennan. Since leaving office, Brennan has been extremely outspoken against Trump. Now, Trump has revoked his security clearance, which he had held since leaving. And now, eight other people also have their security clearances up for review. So what's the best case scenario here? Security clearance reform, which I know sounds boring, but it's actually really important, guys. 4.3 million people as of 2015 held security clearances, ranging from confidential to secret to top secret to top secret SCI. 
High-ranking former officials keep their clearance when they leave so they can keep advising the government on sensitive matters. But the classification process is often used to hide things that don't need to be hidden and used to shut down arguments over national security. We know something that you don't. You don't know what you're talking about. So let's just leave things as they are. That's no real way to set policy for a country. As of right now, the president has complete authority over the process, deciding what gets to be classified and what doesn't, and delegating that power down throughout the government. Best case scenario, Congress could see, this is a mess, we need to fix it. But right now, that seems pretty unlikely. Instead, it looks like we're going to be fighting over the First Amendment. Was Trump revoking Brennan's security clearance an attempt to stifle his freedom of speech? Also, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Trump linked Brennan's security clearance to the Russia investigation, which is probably going to be an issue for him moving forward. That's interesting, this whole Russia probe thing, which will likely lead us to not pay attention to the uninteresting thing, this much-needed reform. That was the eternal optimist Hayes Brown. And now it's time for Subject Line with the king of newsletters himself, Elamin Abdel Mahmoud. Hi, Elamin. Hello, it is I, your royalty king of newsletters. <laughs> All hail the king. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to give you a news story from this week, and you are going to come up with a snappy little subject line, like the kind of subject line that you would put out in the BuzzFeed News newsletter, um, and tell us why we should care. All right, are you ready? Uh, my body's ready. My mind is somewhat ready. Um, <laughs> I, my soul is soups ready. So I'm as ready as I can possibly be. Uh, the first one is just one word, Omarosa. Omarosa. Um, for that, I give you one more dawn, one more day. One day more, another day, another destiny. This never-ending road to Calvary. <laughs> that is from Les Mis for all you people who don't know musicals. Wow, um, I that that includes me. I was like, hmm, I'm not really getting this one. That's fine. I like I'll forgive you this one, I guess. Um uh, Well thank and, you. Uh, and the reason I go with that subject line is because this is really all about attention, right? Like this is all about um maintaining uh, presence and dominance over the news cycle for just one more day, right? Mm -hmm. That's a reason you don't leak out all your um tapes. Uh, all in one go. And that's what Omarosa has been doing. So she's been sort of staggering these tapes um, and she claims to have more. And so we're all, it's kind of like, what is she going to do next? And then that keeps the story alive for just one more day. And then after that, one more day. And then you hope that during that one day, she sells more books. And um, that seems to be what's, uh, what's going on right now. It seems to be the case. Yes. <laughs> all right. So I got the next one for you. The EU ghosts Canada. Give me a snappy one. Snappy, snappy. Uh, the snappy one is, I dreamed a dream of a time gone by. That is also <laughs> from Les Mis, so you're just going to not do well in this segment if you haven't seen or heard Les Mis. I've seen the movie musical version yeah. with How Hugh Jackman. How could you not It doesn't matter. How this can you ever erase the memory of Russell Crowe singing? It's 24601. My name is Jean Valjean. And I'm Javert. Do not forget my name. I, here's the thing. I will defend Russell Crowe singing. I will die on that hill. I'm happy to do it. Um, 
but that's like a whole other conversation, possibly a whole other podcast. I would start a podcast dedicated to defending Russell Crowe. Wow. Wow. I feel very strongly about that. (laughs) So tell me about the EU bailing on Canada. Sure. So the reason I would choose that subject line is because uh, Saudi Arabia arrested a bunch of human rights advocates um, and Canada went to bat for the activists, meaning advocating for them and advocating for their release. Now, typically in this kind of situation, um, the, the way that world affairs have always worked is that the United States would back up Canada and then the UK would back up Canada, then France would back up Canada. Um, and this it would be a whole sort of cascading effect of pressure. But in this particular case, nothing. Absolute crickets on the world stage. So the EU uh, had actually drafted a statement in support of Canada. And uh, we had a story earlier this week um, from some exclusive sources that told us that the EU actually chose to drop that statement and not release it publicly, uh, choosing instead to go to uh, Saudi Arabia, like foreign minister and advocate to him directly, but like not make Um, no sort of public show of support for Canada. And so the subject line is really just about uh, an an old gone time of liberalism where these sort of uh, human rights concerned powers would actually like back each other up. I dreamed a dream in time gone by And hope was high and life worth living I've yeah. got a subject line for you off of that one. It's oh boy. in the words of another famous Canadian, EU, do you love me? <laughs> That's it. That should I'm be I'm suing. I'm <laughs> done with you. I'm so mad. <laughs> All right. I got the next story for you. Mm. Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort. The subject line I give you for this is, no one else was in the room where it happens. So I don't get that lame is one either. I am furious with you for even not knowing what Hamilton is or how that ties into it. Oh, that wait, was so not it's, a lame is reference. Oh, my God. I didn't know. I've never you seen had, it either. You had one job. No one's seen Hamilton. The tickets are like a billion dollars. Exactly. What do I look like? Every, a billionaire over here? I'm But everyone's heard the music. Everyone knows all the lyrics to it. Um and uh, that's, I mean, that's a reference to the fact that the trial is over and the jury is deliberating right now. And we are not in the room where that happens, right? So everybody's sort of waiting for the ruling. This is a, a highly watched trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in it, the, the defense rested without calling any witnesses. So I don't know what that says um, about the state of their defense um, and how they feel about it. But... Here we are, and we're waiting, and there's, there is a room where this discussion happens. We're just not in it. Elamine, the king of newsletters, thank you so much, your royal highness, for gracing us with your presence here today. Uh, it is absolutely my pleasure, and uh, in exchange for me having come on here, what I expect from you is to learn all of the words to every lame song and I will <laughs> quiz you on them next week I, you know I'm not sure I'll be totally off book but um, I, I, I should be close to it good if you are listening to this episode and thinking hell or heck look you don't curse I get it 
Neither do I. I would never. But you're thinking these are some great journalists. I wonder what else they think about. Then text Jojo Hoomst. That's W-H-O-M-S-T. And they'll send you a list of everyone who appeared on this week's show. Again, Jojo's number is in the show notes for this episode. And by the way, on Wednesday's group chat episode, we dug into representation and the complicated feelings that fans have for the characters in TV and movie that they love. Uh, It was a really good conversation. And since it's a group chat, we want to hear from you. How do you decide what counts as accurate representation? Text Jojo the word group chat to get in on the conversation. You may hear your answer in a future episode. That's our show. Thanks for listening. This show is still new and developing, so do send us all your thoughts, even if they're rants. We can take it. We're professionals. Send them to podsquad at buzzfeed.com. Be like Cookie521, who says, always look forward to my Wednesday slash Saturdays because of this show. I love it. Their contributors all sound very friendly. We are. And they always include the most important news of the week and break things down for the not checking news everyday people. Love it. Thank you, Cookie521. We love you. But really, if you want to support us, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Use all the stars. All of them. One, two, three, four, five. I know you're going to want to give us six, but you just can't. Complain to Tim Cook and Apple. It's not my problem. This show is produced by The Pod Squad. That's Megan Dietrich, Alex Laughlin, Camila Salazar, Ahmed Ali Akbar, and Julia Furlan. I am Katie Natopoulos. Our boss is Cindy Venegas Jesuale, and our music is by Chad Crouch. Shout out to Vocal Fry Studios in Toronto. And special thank you to Jojo, who, fun fact, has the tippiest top security clearance here at BuzzFeed News. That's right, they know all the secrets. As always, tune in on Wednesday for the next episode of The News from BuzzFeed News. 